Welcome back to Camden Cast, your unofficial Baltimore Orioles podcast from CamdenChat.com. We are recording on April the 23rd, 2012. I am your host, Mark Brown, on Camden Chat. I am Eatmore SK, and I have my podcasting partner in crime, Andrew Gibson, along for the ride, as always. Andrew, how is it going? It is going great. I've been reading this book that I'm super excited to, to share about. It is called Imagine How Creativity Works. It is by a man named Jonah Lehrer, who is a writer for The New Yorker. Um, I heard about it through, he was on the Colbert Report last week, and also uh, noted ESPN columnist Keith Law reviewed this book uh, last week or the week before on his personal site. And I really like it. It's, uh, it reminds me a lot of Malcolm Gladwell who's probably much more popular uh, in the pop science-y sort of anecdotal stories, uh, enlightening on certain scientific or uh, social, soci- social research type projects. And uh, uh, I, I like this type of story a lot because uh, it gets me thinking about like the power of narrative when you're talking about science research. And I always view basically everything I read. Yeah, I'm sure um, there's plenty to say about the power of narrative in sports writing, too. So, right, exactly. Uh, so exactly. Perhaps, perhaps we will work that in throughout the course of this episode. But we have, well, I we think have, we have the perfect guest We do it. have an excellent guest for talking about the power of narrative, or really the power of anything. Uh, his... his Constant retweeting of surrealist and absurdist humor on Twitter is really a treat. And as an Orioles fan, really, you've got to be familiar with the essential pointlessness of life and futility of, of all things to do with life. So it's really a great, great style of humor. And and he's also an Orioles fan, and he is a writer for baseball prospectus as well. He is John Bernhardt. John, welcome to Camden Cast. Hello, Internet. <laughs> hey, Mark. And Hello, hi, John. Well, I, yeah, I was hoping for something a little grander after that build-up there, but that's... Oh, I, I've got nothing. I I live entirely through the people that I retweet. Something about a colossal pillar of wasp eggs. A colossal <laughs> pillar of wasp eggs, yeah. I, I can't do the font, unfortunately, oh. over here, and I, I'm just no good at voices. Yeah, that would have to um, be a special voice, but, but anyway. No one has any idea what we're talking about. The real, the real reason we have John on, aside from his being an Orioles fan, well, actually, that is the real reason, but last week he had... Uh, a, a couple articles on a site called The Classical that mm-hmm. was about the situation with South Korea and the Orioles, and particularly Song Min Kim. Did I even get his name right? God, it's been so long. That's his name. Gotten. And uh, so j- we talked about that a little bit on this podcast when it was happening, but nobody really knew what the deal was because nobody really knew. But uh, John talked to a few people and found out a bit more. So, John, how about you give us a little rundown of what was in your your uh, the Lost Leaders piece? Certainly, it's been it's I think it's been like it's been 63 days now. Oh, no, 67 days since uh, Major League Baseball they didn't void the contract that Sung Min Kim saw, signed with the Baltimore Orioles for uh, $575,000. They they chose not to approve it which basically means that it goes on hold for 30 days, and then anyone can sign him. 
And then after 30 days, uh, after everyone else has had a chance to look at him, if he's still available on the market, the Orioles can go back and sign him to a deal. So we're at the concluding hours of day 67 since that's happened, and Sungmin Kim remains a free agent. Um, he has been banned from Korean baseball essentially for life. He cannot complete. He started high school, his senior year of high school, probably about two weeks ago. He cannot play for his high school team his senior year. He cannot coach or play in the Korean professional leagues, and he is essentially banned from any amateur competition that's overseen by the governing bodies of Korean baseball. Uh, he does not get to appeal this. He does not get Basically, he has no method of legal recourse unless he wants to take it to their court system where he will uh, not win. That's just – he won't. He won't win there. Um, the reason he's been banned for life is that the Korean Baseball uh, Association, that's the uh, organization in Korea that governs their amateur uh, competitions and amateur baseball tournaments uh, such as high school showcases, college championships, that sort of thing. And the Korean Baseball Organization, which is their professional league, um, were not happy with the Orioles for signing Kim that $175,000 contract. And the alleged reason they gave is that the Orioles had signed Kim without properly following procedure. They hadn't performed something called a status check with the Korean baseball organization. The thing about the status check that the KBO performs is that it is not binding. Unlike with uh, Nippon Professional Baseball, the Japanese Professional League, uh, Korean Professional Baseball by the the contract that they signed, the agreement that they signed with Major League Baseball can't actually stop a Major League team from signing a kid uh, who is in the KBA's jurisdiction. Um, they can say that, you know, pretty please don't. We'd really like to have him in our draft and have him for a couple years before you sign him. But there's no actual, you know, there's no actual way for them to stop that. Now, since the Orioles were careless enough not to follow the protocol to the letter and even get that rejection – the uh, Korean baseball organizations have essentially used this as a pretext to renegotiate the deal. Right, and the um, Orioles scouts remain banned from Korean baseball activities, and perhaps you've seen on the internet, yeah. you the listeners, I know John has obviously seen the signs with the, the Korean characters and then the English translation, like this stadium is off-limits to scouts from Baltimore Orioles. And they've posted that at presumably all the places where there's uh, there's baseball scouting to be done. Yeah, and Edward Encina, the Baltimore Sun, had, a, had an interesting article on March 22nd about that. Now, that March 22nd article is the last reference I can find from any of the – certainly any of the Mass and Beat writers who stopped covering this in February, basically. But even from the Sun, March 22nd is about when they sort of let the Kim – stuff go because the season was starting they didn't want to you know focus on that while the orioles were actually winning baseball games because uh, let's be honest there'll be plenty of time when the orioles aren't winning baseball games to talk about Sung Min kim um but he had a he had a line in that march 22nd article which is basically saying that the orioles had no comment right now but they still planned on signing kim again at some point in the far distant future that uh, Orioles scouts are still this is this is in Cena's reporting. Oriole scouts are reportedly still banned by the KBA from amateur baseball events in South Korea, which include high school showcases and college games. But it's difficult to enforce that rule. 
I'm not sure where Encina got the, but it's difficult to enforce that rule. Well, yeah, they could just go in and they wear, you know, a Red Sox hat yeah, instead. Yeah, they just, you know, because... they wear a Yankees cap or a Red Sox cap, and they just, you know, sneak the kid out of the, um, out of the country under the dead of night. It'd be like, it'd be like an old Bugs Bunny cartoon where he just puts on a mustache and he's a different guy. Yeah, and then they they bring him back to America and they try to sign him to a deal, and MLB just won't approve it. I mean, sure, the Orioles can sneak into South Korean baseball games and scout South. Excuse me. Scout South Korean amateurs if they want, but they still eventually have to tell the league they're signing them. And the league values its relationship with South Korea more than it values the Baltimore Orioles' desire to waste money in the country, um, which is what they do. They they essentially use P, uh, players like Kim and uh, Un Chul Choi, who's a, a journeyman relief pitcher who pitched in the um, in the Mexican Winter Leagues last year, they signed him to a minor league deal for more money than he was worth. He has like an ERA of 16 in independent ball. Um, well, that's, that's um, as Dan Duquette would say, that's a qualified pitcher and a dependable pitcher that they would be glad to have in the organization. Pretty much. And they're going to but, continue their policy of pursuing top talent wherever it can be found. I think that's what Dan Duquette would say. That's and that they are super double triple going to follow procedure this time, guys. Now that the guy they're pursuing has been, you know, excommunicated from Korean baseball. Kim's strange because it was so obvious that the Orioles were were lying about his abilities. Yeah, and that was really one of the weirdest parts of the story. Was like every like all the national baseball people that maybe actually knew a person who at least either was in Korea or spoke Korean. Uh, we're we're basically writing about how well there's the Orioles are saying this guy is one thing and like every other team, I think that was what Ben Badler from Baseball America really yeah. really brought the uh, kind of peeled the scab off of that if you will and was talking about how the other teams like didn't even file a report on him because he wasn't even a, enough of a prospect to have paper on. I mean when a kid is sitting 78 to 85, 85 being the top that other scouts recorded, and really only getting guys out because he's a lefty with a decent curveball at age 17. Uh, of course, he has, he has a curveball. He's a plus curveball at age 17, but uh, what happens when he hits, you know, double A, where hitters can actually hit curveballs, or at the very least won't just flail away in the dirt at a curveball whenever it comes out of his hand. And they, were saying, they were saying things like, Oh, he's really advanced. We're going to start him off yeah. at, at, at least Delmarva or yeah. Frederick. They were talking full season A for him from the beginning, and that was just – it was insane. I mean, honestly, if it, – it's not insane that he could have gone from being the guy that the scouting reports said he was from every other organization to the guy the Orioles said he was in six months. Eric Bedard had a – even crazier transformation in junior college. He grew like six inches, eight inches, and put 10 miles per hour on his fastball in one year. But the thing is, people noticed that. Like, as soon as he grew six inches or eight inches, I forget what it was, I think it went from 5'4 to 5'11, and his fastball went from 81 miles per hour to 91 miles per hour, people took note. And the rest of Major League Baseball just had 30 days to sign this kid. And if you're a lefty who's sitting high 80s with your fastball at age 17. I mean, sorry, high 80s, low 90s. They were saying like 90, 92 was where he was topping out. Um, the Orioles were at least with a plus curveball. 
at age 17 and you're, you're projecting him to add a few miles per hour and add more muscle to his lower body and his uh, his core section, you don't just, you know, let him sit, especially since he's already been banished from South Korea, which is not a market most most countries, were, uh, most teams were interested in anyway. Uh, it's not like Korean baseball, the Korean baseball organization could do anything worse to Kim than they'd already done. Kim has so, no reason not to sign. But, so the Orioles have, and, and correct me if I'm uh, misreading this, they've kind of wrecked up this guy's life a little bit here. Uh, I think that's an understatement. Um, um, to what end? Like, what what advantage do they get out of all of this? None. They were, the advantage they were supposed to get was to be the guys throwing around the money, the big fish in a small pond. If the Orioles – and this is what he tried to do with the Red Sox too with all those terrible uh, South Korean signings he made for guys that you know barely hit the majors. And Part of the issue I think is that he has generally a decent approach, which is that you need to maximize undervalued talent or marginalized talent in non-traditional markets, but that the actual scouts he's using have no idea, have no idea what it constitutes a good prospect in this day and age. They can't, they can't pick the right guys. Um, and really, that was one of the weirdest. Another one of the aspects of that whole thing is there's no chance that whoever saw Kim in South Korea was employed by the Orioles at this time last year. Whoever it was, there's no chance. Uh, Pontivit, I think his name is, right? Pontivit. I, have, uh, I think it, it's like Quadivant, but I have no Plotivin? idea how it actually I is I forget how it's, how it's pronounced. He served in the Korean War. Right, um, that was the thing that stood out when they announced him about from his bio. Like, I, I don't want to, I don't want to rain on the parade here, but in his bio, he fought in the Korean War, and now we're excited was, that he's been hired in 2011 and 2012. The Orioles gave him his first job as a scout when the franchise was less than 10 years old. They had, they had been less than 10 years since they moved to uh, Baltimore. <clears throat> excuse me, to Baltimore from St. Louis. That's when uh, that's when Ray Pativet, uh, Pativet, whatever, got his first job in the organization. Now, over the years, he's he's had a number of decent hits. Eddie Murray was one of his the guys that he drafted. Uh, I believe he was responsible for Dennis Martinez coming over too. But at some point, I mean, in this day and age, the game passes guys by. Even general managers by like age 45, age 50. This guy's pushing 90. Um, and he claimed he claimed to have been scouting Kim for two years. I can't figure out. I can't find anywhere on the internet what he was doing before he was hired as the um, as the director of international scouting operations for the Orioles. But he's only been employed by Baltimore for this this time around for like four or five months. I'm not sure if he was running a private outfit that was scouting South Koreans. I don't know. But um, he, I do know that Sungmin Kim did not have an agent. Um, the, his deal with Baltimore was brokered solely through his family, and that alone raises red flags. Because uh, what? Cause if you're it, anybody who's anybody, you've got an agent just in case, right? Yep. And if you're anybody who's anybody, you've got an agent. And honestly, when it's just the parents negotiating for the kid, uh, you're going to get burned. Unless I, I don't know what his family's background is, but I'm going to bet that his father and mother were not sports contract lawyers. Um, but maybe they were. Maybe that's why they didn't get represented. But he he got burned real bad. 
like he's not he is good enough for the Korean baseball leagues. He might be good enough to pitch in NPB if he develops a little bit more. Now, that could be decent for him in America. Like I don't think he ever realistically has a shot to make it out of double A. If he really surprises people, maybe he might make a triple A, but I don't think there's any realistic chance he makes the majors. However, he can learn to pitch well enough in single A, especially double A. He'll see hitters in double A and certainly triple A. That will prepare him to play, you know, NPB ball. If the Orioles aren't going to sign him, no one else over here is, and he's not going to get that developmental time. He certainly can't do it in South Korea, and I don't think the Japanese leagues are going to be real, you know, high on letting him in, considering how many of how many Japanese nationals they have able to fill whatever de- developmental system they have there. So, John, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it seems to me when I read your article that your conclusion was basically that it's up to the Orioles to make it right for kind of uh, really just showing up and trashing what chance this kid had of making it to whatever his level of talent would allow him to do. Is that is that an accurate summation of your opinion? I wouldn't say that I'm that naive. Um, I don't think they will. I think that the Orioles are trying to re-sign him, but I think they're trying to get him to agree to a $5,000 to $15,000 bonus as opposed to a $575,000 bonus. So in other words, instead of getting twice the max salary that any Korean homeborn player who has not played in an American or Japanese professional league uh, has ever gotten in Korean professional baseball. Um, They want him to sign for less than I would make in a year flipping burgers at McDonald's. Um, And that's insane. But it's business, and honestly, they can get away with it. They're going to get away with it. I mean, well, they're not going to get away with it. They've already been banned from the country. Uh, They've already lost whatever actual gain they hope to get out of this relationship, which was – you know, to be the guy known who's throwing throwing money around in South Korea, they can't be that guy anymore. And so they really, look like incompetent idiots, in, right? In the I United States, which maybe they are. I don't know. I don't know how you come in to professional uh, to a professional sports franchise, and in the first four months of your tenure there, you get banned from a country that you've decided to make the focus of your. Uh, of your rebuilding, of your rebuild. Very, very carefully, John. That's how. Very carefully. Yeah. And I guess I suppose it has something to do with them, you know, there literally not being anybody else who wants the job. But you'd think at least they'd have convinced um, uh, Ray Pativit, or their director of international scouting, to retire. You'd think that at least has to be something that's coming up on the agenda. Right it or does, wrong. It, it kind of puts. Dan Duquette's whole tenure here in an interesting light where he already was like a long shot to like break back into the majors. Well, it was only after what four or five people had rejected the Orioles to vary with varying levels of public. About half a dozen of them in in public reportedly more than that in private. So yeah, Uh, Um, he he only got the job because Jim Duquette, his cousin still has contacts within the Baltimore front office, which, in and of itself, is a is a is a red flag because Jim. Right. Duquette, well, that that's kind of like the red flag. Yeah, that, Jim. They they won't just clean house. Yeah, right. there's sure still guys the from that era. era. I mean, yeah. yeah. Duquette presided. Uh, Jim Duquette presided over seven years of just squalid baseball in Baltimore. Uh, besides the beginning of the 2005 season, he didn't really do much anything. I mean, he was responsible for Ponson, I believe. He had. Um, he, uh, 
yeah, just a lot, a lot of bad things during those years, and a lot of mediocre ball, and a lot of bad baseball. Um, and then you know all the all the terrible owner um, meddling and all that all that madness. The two-headed general manager for a while, which was its own source of embarrassment. The, that he still has nothing against Duquette. I, uh, Jim Duquette. I think he's I've, he's made a pretty successful second career for himself as a XM. Uh, radio host slash mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. journalist guy, but if he still has contacts in the Orioles front office after six years of not being the general manager and all of his seven years there were disastrous, and those guys still have enough pull to get his cousin an interview when his cousin's been off doing the Israeli uh, running the Israeli professional baseball league into the ground and uh, out of baseball a for a decade almost one decade. He his other like he ran a he runs a, a a baseball camp in the summer, and he was part of that abortive Israeli professional league, and that's about it for the past ten years. That doesn't happen in Major League Baseball a lot. If you want a job in Major League Baseball and you were a general manager, someone's going to make you a scout. If you want if you want that that job, either he was too proud to take that job or something else. But yeah, you know, I can't speak to that. I can speak to him being out of the game for ten years, and it certainly looks like it passed him by. So that's that's the Dan Duquette story as seen through the Song Min Kim situation and yeah. Really the more you dig into it the more of a mess it is and there's not and not a lot of people that really can or want to dig into it. I'll be keeping an eye on the story. Um if about by the All Star break still nothing's been done with him, I'll write another piece. But honestly I don't really expect this name Sung Min Kim to be something that the Orioles front office wants people to be asking about from here forward. And there's not a ton of people that are professionals that cover the Orioles that can't even really be in a place to ask those questions and expect answers, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah. and we've talked, Mark, a lot about kind of the feeling of distrust we get when we read like pieces from The Sun or Masson. Masson and... in particular, since the organization is ultimately owned by the Orioles or Peter Angelis. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's things like this story and like the, the uh, Encina quote of, um, but it's hard to, to really make sure that they stay out of Korea or, or whatever the exact quote yeah. is. It's yeah, difficult it's, to enforce that rule. I mean, and there's a lot of quotes like that. I mean, right. Ed, Ed, Eddie and seems like a good reporter, but a lot of, especially on this particular issue, a lot of his pieces are basically Dan Duquette hand feeding shows. Um, like his original piece on Un um, Choi was more or less a PR. Hello, Korea. We are here to throw around some money. His and his pieces on um, the on Kim after the ban- after the the contract was not approved were more or less unnamed sources from the warehouses uh, warehouse feeding him stories, mm-hmm. which you know that has a place in journalism certainly. Sure, but. sure. It, it doesn't help with the whole. From my perspective, the whole I'm not being served by the sports media in Baltimore thing yeah. I've got going on. So. That's tough. It is. I mean, you can't reasonably expect any true amount of holding feet to the fire or, or like, real investigative journalism, especially not from a guy like me. I have no access. I have no real contacts. The Orioles are pretty strict about how they interact with bloggers. and, uh, and, and Which, which is to say they don't, more or less. Yeah. 
Now Pretty they much. send they, they send me press releases and they send Stacy Long press releases and occasionally like just today Stacy and I were talking about how the Orioles were inviting certain bloggers you could request one game per series to go sit in the press box but they don't actually let you go in the clubhouse and talk to the players or um, ask questions at the the post game interview with Buck Showalter for instance yep. and that's pretty much the extent that uh, that they yep. even really acknowledge that bloggers exist. I know Luke Jackson is one of the um, the guys, the other the other Orioles, you know, fan media guys that we've got floating around in our social circle. And mm-hmm. he's been stone he's been stonewalled. I, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but I believe he's told me he's been stonewalled by Orioles PR a couple times due to not having an official press pass. And honestly, I'm pretty sure the organizations that the Orioles are willing to recognize as official press certified are going to be maybe the city paper. At the lowest, um, if they ever did sports reporting, then you got the Sun, Masson, and the national outlets. None of none of, uh, and maybe maybe the local papers like um, Howard County Times or something. Um, if someone's really going to do that, but I don't think they I don't think they give UMBC reporters uh, press stuff uh, for their student paper. Um, now, I'm pretty sure they don't do anything for bloggers. In fact, I'm very sure they don't do anything for bloggers. Um, either way, I don't expect me writing about this is going to have any real impact on it. Um, I don't expect Daniel Kim and Korea following up with Orioles PR is going to have any real impact on it. We're more or less in wait-and-see mode, um, and not too much more you can reasonably expect at this point than maybe a, um, a signing later in the year at a much, much discounted bonus amount, and then you don't really hear Kim's name again until it gets cut in a couple seasons. Well, John, that's right back to how I introduced you, really the essential pointlessness of it all, but uh, here, yeah. here we all are, and we're Orioles fans talking about the Orioles anyway, so let's look at our present day. They're actually 9-7. and seven. Andrew and I were talking before we recorded. We were varying degrees of surprise that there was even a uh, above 500 record this far into the season, because I think I think we're st- I th- at least I am still scarred from that two and sixteen two years ago where I just expect every year to begin that horribly. But one uh, of the one of the things that's kind of a uh, not as positive so far is the watching Brian Mattis pitch and it just doesn't look like he's fully figured out whatever he needed to figure out. So my question was, how much longer are do you think they should or will give him if he's continuing to do about as well as he's done so far? Which is, I um, think I think they're going to give Brian Mattis exactly until either Zach Britton is healthy, Siyoshi mm, Wada is healthy, or mm, Chris Tillman figures something mm, out. So Brian Mattis could still be in the rotation continually throughout October, the year. Yeah, yeah. he could, he <laughs> could stay up all that way. I mean, Tillman is down in Norfolk right now throwing five ERA ball. Um I think he's pretty much done. We may not see him again in the majors as a Baltimore Oriole. Um, if we do, he will probably be after rosters expand, and he will be a long reliever. Um, Mattis, I think, is done as well, but we're gonna we're gonna still see him get thrown out there to the Wolves game after game. Um, Let's at see, this looking point, at the Norfolk Tide stats. Sorry to interrupt, John. So Chris Tillman has started three games. A small sample size, obviously, but he's only pitched 13 and a third innings in those three games. Uh, he has a 1.65 WHIP, and he's got 4.73 ERA, and that's yeah, that's AAA, which he's shown 
in in the past he did very well in, but he just never could could translate that to the majors. And who knows yeah. whatever happened to him, but doesn't seem like it's uh, going back in the right direction. He and Mattis have similar problems, which is that they've got decent stuff but can't really command anything. Um, but even T- Tillman, when he came up, even his, even his stuff seemed bad. His flat, his fastball slow, you know, dropped a couple miles per hour and was flat. Uh, neither he nor Mattis have had really impressed, have had really fastballs that move since, uh, probably since like 2008, 2009. Uh, and Tillman out of all the young guys, uh, Arietta, Mattis, Tillman, Britain has had the least impressive looking starts up top. I th- Mattis has obviously been more spectacularly destructive. Yeah, I agree with you 100% right there, John. It's like any any one of those other guys, you could if you watch them at their best, you can see well, okay, I understand why professional people think this guy's going to be a good pitcher. And yeah. I don't well, Andrew, I think remembers Chris Tillman throwing his beautiful pitch. He always uh, likes to talk about, but I don't really remember just there was it was it's very specific memory and it's a very happy memory and I don't want you guys to stomp all over it. You're so. sure this is Chris Tillman, right? You're not like <laughs> yes. it's not like Jim not Jim Johnson. It was it was September the 11th of it must have been 2009. Um, he was a September call up. All right, I'm gonna stop you there and just mention how bad yeah. it is for a player that if you can remember his one good pitch and remember yeah. dates, because right. that means there haven't been any others. Well, that, that's that's all true. <laughs> I still do not want you to to stop all, right. all over no, this. That's fine. So okay, uh, so we won't ruin Andrew's good good Chris Tillman memory. But they, they were in New York. Yeah, and if you keep talking about it, we're gonna ruin it. It was it was against Nick Swisher, and he swung and missed, and then just yelled out an obscenity which is not safe for work and it cracked me up the end that was it that was the 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 peak and denouement of chris tillman (laughs) do you think it was the same obscenity that i use every time i see a chris tillman start uh probably okay i think probably one that is so yeah mattis when i've seen him this year it just seems like Everything is like up in the zone, and that's him and Hunter both have that issue. Um, both guys are flyball pitchers, which honestly I think mostly means that they can't pitch down in the zone. Like they throw so hard that their stuff stays up, or they have to throw with so much effort that they can't locate or, or something. But Mattis, the thing about Mattis that's so weird is because he has 200 innings of decent major league pitching. 200 innings. It's not like he came up and had a good 50, and he not like he had a good September or something one year. He had 250, 200 innings, uh, which is a September call-up, and I believe 172 innings or so the next season. Let's see. Yeah, he uh, threw 44 and two-thirds in 2009, and then he threw 175 and two-thirds in 2010. That's like 225. Yeah. Um, innings of good, solid professional baseball. Not great. A little bit worse than league average, I think, by ERA plus, but certainly great building blocks and then he just comes out and puts up the worst season that a starting pitcher has ever put up in major league baseball for what appears to be basically no reason at all he hurt he quote he quote unquote hurt himself right he had it he had it uh what was it an oblique muscle injury it was an intercostal oh that was it intercostal Intercostal muscle i mean it's not and his velocity was down at the end of the year but then his velocity came back and he got worse 
His fastball didn't fool anybody. He strikes out a lot of guys per nine, but mostly because he sees a lot of guys per nine um, because he's always allowing people on base. He and Hunter do that a lot. They have they have really good seeming peripheral stats on the on the the uh, on the face of things. I think I think Tommy Hunter's last outing he had eight strikeouts and eight earned runs, um, and it's because he sees so many guys. His K nines around you know eight or nine per nine innings, but his what, K Tommy percentage. Hunter? No way. Yeah. No way. Tommy Hunter. Yeah. Well, let's see. Tommy Hunter. I'm pretty sure Tommy we're not going to get like above five six on nine. Tommy Hunter. Okay, Tommy Hunter so far this year has 6.27, but his career is 5.05. Yeah, I mean, that start at least. He struck out a lot of guys, but his K percentage, like how many of his how many of his plate appearances end in strikeouts, uh-huh. is like 15. Yes, I, I, I understand what you're saying. Yeah. Um, so and in could, that particular start, he also gave up an absurd amount of home runs. Was it like five home runs or something? Yeah. and that was that was Mattis's problem too in yep. 2011. So, well, it's, it's the problem that every fly ball pitcher is going to have when they get bad because once when your fly balls are getting hit hard. I th- was Hunter even in Camden Yards for this most recent disaster? No, I think that was. He uh, was. No, that was in Toronto. Yeah, it was either was Toronto or, or Chicago. Yeah. So we're not very we're not feeling very optimistic about Brian Mattis here, I guess, is our conclusion. No, but maybe 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 we'll be pleasantly surprised. I wrote an article about Mattis um, for Baseball Prospectus during spring training, back when we were uh, some people were really high on him because of his peripherals. He well, he he playing. had he had great spring training stats. Like yeah. what was it? Something like twenty two and three. Twenty two uh, strikeouts to three walks. Three walks. I mean, he well, also there were also some really good by coming out from spring training that the command was back that the velocity was back well, and both, obviously the velocity's yeah. there but I don't see any command I don't I see mean, any control let alone command there's I guess there's a decent case to be made that guys either weren't swinging as well or he was facing I mean the thing is he wasn't even facing bad lineups he did get an obscene amount of ground balls in the double play however he pitched I want to say like 30 innings of spring training ball if that and he got 8 double play balls which that's just absurd. Well, he must have had the minor league infielders playing behind him who can actually like get to ground balls. <laughs> yeah. There was one start, I think it was against the Phillies, where he got a ground ball into a double play each of the first three innings to clear the bases. Um, he got a couple against the Tigers and that one really good start, something like that. And I got some comments in that article telling me that uh, some studies have been done showing that you could actually use spring training peripherals predictively, which is just an insane no, proposition. No, you can't. I mean, if you are, if you want to use that, if you accept the proposition that spring spring training tra- stats are predictive, you then also accept the proposition that postseason stats matter because that they're the same inning sample size. If you can tell something from one, you can tell something from the other, and that is not a can of worms anybody who works with advanced stats wants to open um, because it's 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 mind-bogglingly bad. Like it makes no sense. Like an entire like arm and leg of using advanced stats is based on sample size issues like how long does it take before you can actually use a piece of data that you have and have confidence in it 20 you know 50 plate appearances and 20 innings is not enough no matter what time of year it is mm-hmm. and so that was insane and uh, unfortunately brian has proved me correct i sort of wish he had well so far so far. So his well, next I'm, start, I believe, is Thursday against the Blue Jays. So we'll see how he does there. And that'll be in Camden Yards. I don't 
I don't have a ton of optimism. Like, like with Brian Mattis at this point, I just and I talk about this some on Camden Chat is I play with him. He just needs to play the don't suck so much that his ERA goes up from its already bad level game, which he Every failed start. like last year, all except for one start, which one was start, yeah. Astounding. It went down by .04. That's like like he last year, like, even in his final start when he came in with a 10.68 ERA, he left with a 10.69 ERA. That's, I mean, you can't even get your ERA to go down at 10.68. It just blew my mind. It really yeah. did. But this last start, he had it go down from like uh, eight something to six seven seven i think it's in the sevens right now but that was only because one error got changed from earned to unearned due to an error 7.98 right now yeah that's where it sits that's no good so he so yeah thursday can he make it go down from 798 you know not like not like throw his shut out but can he maybe get it to you know 7.5 and then the next time maybe 7.0 i don't know i do want to say that i have been really pleasantly surprised with wei and chen so far um, I did not think that Chen would be this good. Yeah, and obviously the same small sample size applies for him through his starts so far. But you well, know, honestly, clearly, he's... after the first inning of that Yankees game, I thought it, we were just like <laughs> it was going to be—he was going to have a laugher of a career, more or less, because he was a control guy who had absolutely none of it. But he even calmed down within that game and made a lot of good pitches and got outs. So it's going to be interesting to see how he develops. He's only pitched like 18 innings so far. But him and Jason Hamill, who seemed like he might have some of his peripherals back, you know, again, it's only 20 innings. We won't know for sure, but it's at least encouraging. Um, yeah, and Chen is still relatively young-ish. I think he's yeah. 26, and so 26. obviously this is his first time really pitching against the you know major league caliber competition. So there's some adjustments for him to do. You know, one kind of physically, I guess, to adjust to the uh, the workload and. MLB as opposed to pitching in the Japanese baseball league, and then mm-hmm. you know actually adjusting to the hitters, which within a game he's shown he can do that. Like you said to that Yankees the game, it looked like it was just going to be a disaster his first start, but he really battled back and made something out of it. it what it really was, it looked strange. It was less that he was adjusting to the hitters, and more he was adjusting to the just ridiculous strike zones that have been popping up in his starts, like. The stuff that he was throwing for balls up high started coming down and in a little bit and actually hanging out off the plate but inside the ump strike zone. I'm not sure that was just was if that was Weeders, that was him, if that was just blind luck. Um, but it's usually not blind luck at this level of play. Um, and he is supposed to be a good control pitcher. So hopefully that can continue even when the umpire zones are a bit less forgiving. I want to say that Yankees game and the White Sox game that he pitched had some of the more uh, – Interesting strike zones we've seen so far this year, and we've seen some pretty interesting strike zones. But yeah, yeah pretty much every every TV game Jim Palmer's on, he's just giving umpire rants. Like so far this, game. I have a theory about that. Actually, I think the new the, the concussion rules, you know, how they move the umpire into the slot between the batter and the pitcher on the hitter side to reduce the amount of balls that come back and slam the umpire in the face. I think that that's changed how they call the outside part of the Yeah, game. they're viewing the ball from a different angle than they used to. I think it was before the 2011 season that people have been talking about. They had the umpires move to yep. reduce yep. Uh, reduce injury risk, which is a good thing. But definitely and it's made uh, made the outside corners kind of Weird. more expansive. And 
they didn't even really start really doing it. Like the umpires didn't really get the memo until about halfway through 2011. So I think 2012 this season is the first time we're seeing everyone on, from day one standing in that little slot between the uh, the catcher and the hitter. And I think it's done things to the outside corner that currently hitters are not too happy with. But I still am trying to figure out a way to actually like prove that. Well, I guess you could look at all the strike zone maps on uh, brooksbaseball.net, but that sounds like that would be yeah, that a seriously like a lot of tedious task. I don't yeah. know, maybe Andrew can make a database for you, but he probably would have to kill us if he uh, shared any results with us. Yeah, he, he might know. He might be silent here because he's just unable to tell us without killing us what he knows about all My lawyers have advised me to neither confirm nor deny. He's, he's got to plead the fifth. This is what we've resorted to here. Oh. Pitch FX and Brooks Baseball, well, not Pitch FX, but Brooks Baseball did just join Baseball Prospectus, so maybe I'll be able to actually look into that soon. But yeah, for now, I don't I'm, like, I'm, I'm shut out here. We got Andrew works for Baseball Info Solutions, and John is a Baseball Prospectus writer, and I'm nobody. What am I doing here? I don't know. You work for, you work for SBN, my friend. <laughs> I write yeah. for Camden Chat is one way to put it anyway. Yeah. So... Yeah, we're at, we're up in commerce, I guess, sort of. That's what I tell myself. But anyway, that's enough about me. Let's get back on the Orioles. Well, the other- getting back to Chen, I think the thing I'm most interested in seeing is uh, how he responds to getting into the five-man rotation. I, I believe every time the Orioles have had an off day, they've held him back to keep him more on the rotation schedule he's used to. Yeah. Where in Japan, pitchers throw once a week. Um, and obviously a lot of pitchers coming over to the United States, that's been a thing that, well, there's not a lot of success that Japanese and Taiwanese pitchers have seen coming over. I know that Dice K and the Red Sox went through more than a couple public feuds about his throw days. Exactly. um, Which always seemed, you know. A little bit ridiculous, especially because it would only start to matter as soon as Dice K started pitching poorly. Who was the even only one that really changing. came over without drama? It was like Hideo Nomo, I guess. Hideo right? Nomo. It was actually Duquette who brought Nomo over, I believe. Was it? Um, or did he grab him after he came to the Dodgers? Yeah, he, it looks like yeah. I just got him up. It looks like he was on the Dodgers through 98 and Dodgers, didn't come yeah. to Boston until 2001. That makes sense. Might have been Tomo Oka I was thinking of. Did he at least start with with Duquette? Let's find out what BaseballReference.com, which is my favorite site, says. Yes, Tomo Oka started his career on the Boston Red Sox. Actually, it looks like he started with Expos, but came to majors with That would be still Duquette, yeah. yeah. Duquette was, to give Duquette credit where it's... Only it's somewhat due. He was much, much more successful as an actual director of scouting than he ever has been as a general manager um, in terms of getting actual talent. Because uh, when he was director of scouting for the Expos, he was, you know, he was able to get some good guys. Vladimir Guerrero. Um, that was when he picked up that attempted murderer, Ugetherbina. Um, you know, a, a decent players at least, guys who could contribute at the major league level. Um, Javier Vasquez, I believe he got while he was on the Expos as well. And since when he became general manager with the Red Sox, that sort of that sort of dried up. Now he did at the very very tail end of his Red Sox tenure draft Hanley Ramirez and Annabel Sanchez, but then they sent those guys to the Marlins for Josh Beckett, I believe. Yeah, the Josh trade. Beckett Mike Lowell trade, right? Which you know worked out. That worked did out work for both out sides. for them, yeah. 
So not nothing too bad, but those are about the only hits he had. Uh, certainly nothing from the Asian market, except for uh, Tomooka wasn't horrific, I guess. But um, that's not the guy you want to be your hit. No, 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 not at all. Especially not in your South Korea. The best South Korean pitch you had has like a career like sixty three innings of five ERA ball. And didn't he get a multi? Did he get what a multi million dollar bonus, or was that in the, you know? That was the closer. That was the closer who got um he got a two year deal at league minimum, but with like a two million dollar signing bonus. Um, with he was the guy with the ridiculous red hair. Um, Hang Soon. One sec, let me find his name. I Um, I don't even remember a guy with ridiculous red hair. So it's Sang Hoon Lee is his name. Uh, he pitched 11 and two-thirds innings in uh, 2000, 2001, something like that. Um, it came up, went back down, spent the next year in uh, Pawtucket, got released. Or his contract expired, went back to Korea, signed for $500,000 a year, got traded because he played guitar in the clubhouse too much, and that was that. Well, that's uh, that's an interesting problem. Uh <laughs> I guess that's better than what was what was it? Joel Zumaya hurt himself playing Guitar Hero. He hurt his shoulder guitar or something Hero. like that. Yeah. He has managed to he turns hand and, and arm and throwing you know arm injuries into an art form. I think he managed to hurt. Man, if you're really doing the if elbow. you're really doing the uh, the windmills there, you know, I guess you really got to get into it if you're really there. But was he the same guy who hurt himself because he was yes, like packing up his? Todd yeah. says yes before he knows same what the guy. question is. Well, it's actually no. kind of sad because like he was evacuating his house yeah. from California wildfires. Yeah, he was. He was doing that, and he destroyed. He destroyed his elbow doing that. Um, he then there's like I think there's a multitude of like leg or elbow injuries that he just gets from pitching. It's part of – Tom Verducci wrote an article recently that, of course, you know, it generally is smart but maybe is eh, eight to ten years too late about closer injuries and them coming more from turning your closer into a guy who goes all out hardcore, throw the fire all the time. And Joel Zemaya is the epitome of that, throws 100 to 102 but just can't stay healthy for more than 20 innings at a time. Um as opposed to guys like Jim Johnson, who he still throws hard. He throws 95, 96, but he can also do that for 91 innings without exploding. Yeah. Well, knock on wood. I hope he doesn't explode this year. Yeah. I or at least, I don't time. know, let the Orioles trade him before he explodes. I hate stuff am, like that. but I am so not a fan of Jim Johnson as closer. I mean, he can do it. Matt it's Lindstrom could do it. It is a waste of Jim Johnson. <laughs> He should be pitching like 90 innings from the bullpen to supplement the starting pitching that can only go five or six innings into a game. Yeah, he should be doing he should that be the fireman. last year. Yeah. Be the real fireman instead of being the closer. Like he's he's got seven saves. Some of them have been interesting, but he's got seven saves because he's a good pitcher and he gets a lot of ground balls. And that's nice, but you could be doing that for 90 innings a year as opposed to 50. I really kind of want them to make him a starter again. Personally, but well, that ship that, that ship, ship sailed. has sailed indeed. So time is flying on us as always. One final thought we wanted to squeeze in, and we didn't really get to have extended discussion on it. But we wanted to talk about, and we'll just hit it briefly. Adam Jones extender trade. Andrew, go. Um, it depends. Let, let's go with it depends. Okay, John. Extend. Extend. 
if any if this power is anywhere near for real, extend him. If necessary, overpay on dollars, but do not overpay on years. So what's your what's your what's your year cap then? Five. Five, five year caps. I want him uh, the last year for the current extension. If the Orioles win this extension, will be his age 31 season, which I think is five years from now. Could be six years from now. Depends what his age. Nope, it's five years from now. I think Adam, the Orioles extend him. He'll, oh, he'll still be good, but he'll be a corner outfielder. Yeah, and I think he'll, he'd, he'd be up for taking if the Orioles wanted to give him something like that. I would. It'll. I would think it so. allows him if he's still a good hitter. It allows him to hit to go for the big payday at age 31. Yeah, he can still go for you know three, four more big dollar years on top of that or whatever. Who knows what people will be paying by that time? And honestly, at this point, sure, Adam Jones would be. You're you're just paying for a great player if he is indeed you know an 850 to 875 OPS uh, guy in center field and they've been doing pretty good things with his defense I think recently especially with positioning him on individual hitters to actually sort of mask the fact that he doesn't have as much range as some guys out there I think he's fairly decent at center field now not like gold glove but you get gold hey he's a gold glove winner you can't take that away from him I can't take that away from him no matter how hard I try um I can't, but you win gold gloves with your bat, not with your glove. Um, he had a great year at the plate, as they always say about Jeter. Yeah. I mean, I'm hoping that instead of like a 300 hitter, 330 hitter, 620 hitter, I don't think that 620 is sustainable. Right 621 now. slugging percentage as we speak, yeah. which is nuts. If he manages to keep that at about, I don't know, anything above a 900 OPS, extend him. Um, honestly, most of the, most of the scout guys are, you know, pretty heavily behind that slugging being for real. And honestly, he's never even gone above 800 OPS on a season. So if you're talking, no. get him over 900, that's pretty, uh, yeah, but he's also entering his power prime. He's 26 years old. Um, if he, if the power is for real, then I say do it. Uh, and it, honestly, you won't know if the power's real until the end of the season. Really, you're not going to know the power's real until he actually plays the con- years of the contract out. But it's not really like the Orioles are spending that money on anything else anyway. They have the money to spend. Under the new CBA, they're restricted on how much they can spend on the international free agency market and on the amateur draft. you got to spend it somewhere, and it's better to have a hitter like Adam Jones, let him walk to the Yankees. Uh, and who knows? But he, Matt Wieters, uh, pan out. And then anybody starts hitting. If you get two more bats from somewhere, maybe you hold on to Nolan Reimold and he becomes, you know, amazing. And you get Dylan Bundy coming up. Who knows? Maybe they could actually make the playoffs in the next four years, at the end of the four years. Well, that's good it. To still have Adam Jones hanging around. At that I point. find I'm really a horrible flip-flopper on this podcast because I think every other time <laughs> I've been asked about Adam Jones, I'm like, no, trade him. But I don't know. Now I'm starting to feel like, like you said, if it's five years and no more and, you know, some not obscene dollar amount, I feel like that's probably a good deal for the Orioles and also for Adam Jones to have that. Well, I mean, it all comes down to what the rest of the team is sort of shaping up to be. If the Orioles are going to lose 100 games this year, which is not completely out of the question. It's not. In fact, I picked them to do it. <laughs> right. And if they like, they have Dylan Bundy and they have Manny Machado coming up, but if they don't have a whole lot of prospects towards getting really good within the foreseeable future, and I'd label that as like the next three years, uh, 
I feel like you're just wasting your money and your time keeping Adam Jones around instead of cashing him in for for what a better <laughs> chance at getting better. Adam in, Jones, in the, like in the he is pretty much the only successful minor leaguer they've brought up, and that's because he was mostly developed by Seattle. Um, well, like what good does it do? Well, first of all, that's not true because there's Matt Weeders. True, true. Um, he was mostly developed by Georgia Tech. That Peter is so good, not even the Orioles can mess him up. Yeah. Um, it's just, you know, what what good is it going to be for the Orioles to have two, one or two really good players and a, a not good team around them? Because it makes acquiring one or two more really good players much more impactful than if they didn't have Adam Jones. I mean... At some point, you have to have good players for the sake of being good again. And if you have Adam Jones and you're not doing anything else with the money, and the money's there, and the money is there, uh, use it, sign him. I mean, if you, if I want, if I look at the roster right now and I'm looking at a trade candidate, Nolan Reimold is the guy I trade. And of course, the last time we heard Nolan Reimold's name in trade talks, uh, Jason Bartlett was the other guy on the other end of that. So hopefully that's coming. Yeah. Well, if your general manager's going to turn around and trade for Jason Bartlett, then there's no hope for you whatsoever. Well, that, um, that was our last, well, not even a general manager, our last what, vice president of baseball operations, whatever, whatever McPhail's title was. And then Dan Duquette, of course, is the executive vice president of baseball operations. Yeah. But hopefully, I mean, I'm hopefully still not going to trade Nolan Reimold for Jason Bartlett. I would not be against trading Nolan Reimold for pitching, essentially. I'm not sure what the market's going to be for him at the deadline. I'm not because that really depends on what the Orioles situation is and whether Nolan has regressed to the point where um, people still think he can hit like a mad demon like he's been hitting right. recently. And, and also whether Dan Duquette will you know seek prospects instead of failed quad a major leaguers uh if there's one thing i trust dan duquette to do it's to seek prospects i don't trust him to evaluate those prospects correctly especially since he's cut the entire you know staff that was scouting the minor leagues um and all that remains are two advanced scouts at this point i don't trust him to actually get good prospects but i do trust him to trade for prospects i mean because really it sounds like what the Orioles scouting department doing right now is little better than what we do with prospects which is you know listen to kevin goldstein and keith law on twitter and check the minor league pages of baseball reference and maybe look at some youtubes um maybe maybe, go with a baseball america top 100 or whatever too yeah maybe he figures that's all there is to scouting the minor leagues these days i don't know but i do know that uh, cutting those guys to put more money into your amateur um, operation and then starting to get your amateur operation banned from foreign countries is probably not the way to do this. Yeah, probably not. So, I don't know. Will the Orioles ever get ban- unbanned from the South Korean stuff? I wonder. I wonder when or if that will change. Well, nothing. Nothing is permanent in this world. Or nope. the next. Or the I next. Think... And, and speaking <laughs> of the next world, well, really, next we have to save it for the next podcast because we're coming up on an hour right here. Good, good grief. We are long-winded tonight. And uh, well, hopefully that's a good thing in your in your eyes. Uh, probably if it's not, you're not listening anymore anyway. So <laughs> hey, how about that? But we do need to wrap it up. So gentlemen, it's been a pleasure. Always a pleasure to talk Orioles. John, same here. John, thanks for coming on board. Great, yeah, no great to have. This is a, great. Yeah. Something more of an expert than we are to. Oh, I uh, wouldn't say that. I just get angry about the Baltimore Orioles on Twitter. 
I don't necessarily know anything about baseball. Yeah. Well, if that qualifies you for something, then more power to you. Makes you smarter than me. Andrew refuses to get angry. He's trying to be all zen about it, but he needs to, you know, we need to be like Emperor Palpatine in here. Like, no. I don't Give think Emperor Palpatine. your hatred. Yeah. Strike me down. No. He did win, though. Well, at first. Yeah. So, you know. But anyway, so that's that's John Bernhardt and my partner in crime, Andrew Gibson. I am Mark Brown. And we're bringing you Camden Cast, and we are out.